Please turn with me to Psalm 6. On September 8th, 2012, Yusef Nardakhani was freed from prison. It was something of a miracle because he was an Iranian pastor who had previously been sentenced to death for his faith. There was little chance that he would be freed, and yet through the prayers of God's people, he was. Afterward, he wrote an open letter to his supporters. Part in, in that letter, he said in part this, Indeed, I have been put to the test, the test of faith which is, according to the Scriptures, more precious than perishable gold. The Lord has wonderfully provided through the trial, allowing me to face the challenges that were in front of me. As the scripture says, he will not allow us to be tested beyond our strength. I wonder if that's how we think about the trials and the difficulties that come into our life. I wonder if at the end we are able to look back and give glory to God who has sustained us in those things. To even give glory to God who brought those difficulties into our life in order to do a work within us. Or if we just go, I'm glad that's over. I can't believe that that happened. I am just want to put this thing behind me. This past week, I was at the Southern Baptist Convention, and frankly, it was probably one of the best conventions that I've ever attended. Um, perhaps at a different venue, we'll talk more about that and what we saw there. But I was struck one day during our time of corporate worship by one of the songs that we sang. It was not a bad song, but the song was all about God's power to save to save from the valley, to set our feet on high places, to exalt the God who is powerful enough to keep us from harm, and therefore we should praise Him. All that's true. But I had Psalm 6 knocking around in my head all week, knowing that I was going to preach on it. And that's not what Psalm 6 is about. Psalm 6 is not about the God who keeps me from pain. It's about the God that we need in the midst of pain. And I began to wonder if... As the Christian church, even as those representing the church there at that conference, at that convention, would we be able to sing with the same kind of fervency and joy if we were in the pain? I'm reminded of uh, the, the Hebrews who were threatened by being put into the fiery furnace, and their response was not simply, oh, our God can save us. Their response was, yes, of course God can save us, but he may not choose to. He may allow us to be consumed in the fire as a testimony to His faithful and glorious name. I don't think we often think about that part of their statement. I think we love and rejoice in liberty from pain, not what God might produce within us through pain. Can we still praise God during the struggle? Can we still see Him as worthy of our worship? Can we join our brothers and sisters in Charleston this morning with sober and mournful hearts and still give glory to God? Do we individually and corporately, this morning gathered together, do we have a category whereby God can still be praised in the midst of the worst storm? If not, then we need to listen to this psalm. And if we do but wonder how, we need to listen to this psalm. Jesus himself valued this psalm. Twice we see him in the Gospels quoting from this psalm. And you think about it, in the course of the Gospels, we only have a little over, I think, I think someone calculated two months of, of Jesus' life of 35 or so years. 
And twice this psalm comes up in his teaching and in his praying. As Dick Lucas says, it was part of his mental furniture. It was a psalm that was important to Jesus. He had memorized it. He had meditated on it. And he had found great help in it. And if we listen today to what God would say to us through Psalm 6, I think we will find great help as well. Follow along as I read from God's inerrant and inspired word. To the choir master with stringed instruments, according to the Shemineth, a psalm of David. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me, from, for, save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. This psalm is sobering in that it does not hold back the pain that David is feeling. He does not whitewash his emotions. But did you notice the superscription that we read? To the choir master with stringed instruments according to the Shemineth. A choir? Instruments? What is likely the name of some tune? All of these things set the pace for this psalm. What are we to take away from this? Nothing less than this fact. God's people are meant, David wrote this song intending that they sing it. Which means that God's people should not be afraid of corporate worship when their lives are less than ideal. And yet that's the great temptation for us. We experience pain. We experience frustration. And the, one of the first things many of God's people do is say, I don't feel like going to church today. That's when you need church the most. David didn't feel like gathering together with God's people, but when he composed this psalm, it was for that very purpose, to help us know and feel that even when life is falling apart, when we feel as if we cannot go on, that is the precise time to be together with the people of God. We shouldn't be worried when life brings sorrow and pain as if somehow God does not want us before Him, as if somehow the people of God do not want us around. But maybe that's how God's people feel. Perhaps in the church, we don't want to be together with those who endure pain and suffering. Why is it always the people for whom everything seems to go right that we hear testimonies on Sunday mornings? Why do we never hear testimony of those in the crucible, struggling to keep the faith, and yet seeing them press on? Perhaps that would make our faith more real and encourage us as well. We need a place for struggling and weakness in worship. This psalm gives us biblical but honest language with which we may cry out to God in prayer and even sing to Him in the midst of painful circumstances. And so it helps create within us a full-bodied, a full-bodied understanding of the worship of God. 
It begins by showing us the anguish of the soul. The anguish of the soul. What is causing this anguish in the soul? First David says that he is facing the problem of wrath. The problem of wrath. Or if you're Scottish, wolf. David begins by calling out to God, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. David understands the distress that he's experiencing to be coming from God. There again is a lesson that sweeps across so many Christians. I had the occasion to meet with a fellow uh, on a denominational level uh, several times over the course of a few weeks. And even within those meetings where the topics were the same but completely different, he twice brought up this idea that because somebody was going through something difficult, he would say, well, God didn't give that to you, but he will use it. God didn't bring that to your life, but he can do something with it. To which I say, why are you so, why are you so worried about defending God? The Bible doesn't say that. When, when, when Job's world is destroyed, what does he say? This is from God's hand. He gives, he takes away, we still bless him. And so David here also understands that, that the, 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 the pressure, the crucible, this kind of crushing in, this depleted, this depletion of strength of, because of his circumstances has come because of God. But notice, what does he say? He says... Do not rebuke me in your anger. Do not discipline me in your wrath. Now, he doesn't actually ever repent of a sin in this psalm. Some see it's implied throughout the whole thing, particularly because of his use of the word rebuke. And so they would say that what he's going through is the result of his sin. But the way the Bible uses that word rebuke, it could also just mean a, a hard life lesson that needs to be learned, as we see in Proverbs 3, 11, and 12. Either way, notice that David does not ask for God to stop rebuking him. Many might pray that way. But instead he says, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. What is he asking for here? Well, the emphasis in the original, that the words at the front of the sentences are anger and wrath. I think what David is essentially saying is, look, I, I know you're bringing this on me, but don't treat me like an unbeliever. Don't treat me like some pagan that doesn't know you, God. Don't arouse the fullness of your good anger and wrath towards me. It's okay for the discipline. It's okay for the rebuke. But don't treat me like I don't know you. Don't treat me as if we're strangers in this. David wants to be dealt with as a child of God, not a rebel against God. A child is one who is disciplined, not judged. Discipline may involve punishment, but it's Goal is instruction and change, not merely condemnation Do one sin. And so in this way, David sees the Lord both as the threat as well as the hope. Because he has hope in the Lord, he can pray from the problem of weakness. His problem of weakness. In verse 2, David prays, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. Now again, it's kind of hard to know exactly what's going on. Uh, this could be literal, physical experience, or it could be metaphorical language to describe the, the spiritual difficulty that he's in. It's poetry, after all. It wouldn't be out of place. It could be either one. 
But at the same time, the point is not whether it's just physical or whether it's spiritual. The point is to see the pain and exhaustion that he's going through. And he elaborates a little bit on this in verses 6 and 7. As we think about whether it's just physical, whether it's physical or spiritual or both, David is feeling crushed because he's feeling disciplined and therefore distant from God, but also attacked by his enemies that he mentions later in verses 8 through 10. In all of this, David feels weak. His knees have buckled. He's languishing. He's greatly troubled. But in all that, what does he do? He asks God for help. Specifically, he says, be gracious to me. Heal me. David is asking God to lessen the severity of his situation so that he can feel whole again. Why? Because he's at the breaking point. He doesn't know how much longer he can go on in the state that he's in. And so he feels his problem of weakness. I I cannot continue like this. I feel like I am at the breaking point. So God, be gracious to me. God, heal me. I'm languishing. I'm troubled in body and soul. But at the same time, this anguish is also seen in David's problem of waiting. David's problem of waiting. David has prayed from the anguish of a soul and he asks, But you, O Lord, how long? How long? David is desperate to know, how long is this going to take? How much longer will this experience go long? How long before you, O Lord, step in and do something? Because of this crushing weight, David feels as if his friendship with God is gone. It's agony to his soul, and he wants the Lord to return to him. But how long will it be? How long, O Lord? How long? It's one of the frequent prayers of the psalmist, as we will see throughout all 150 psalms. And I think that if we're honest with ourselves, we understand exactly the burden of that prayer especially perhaps even more so than in David's time. We want what we want and we want it right now, right? Isn't that how we live? And so when we call out to God and ask for something, we don't just say, God, be gracious to me. We say, now God, how long is it going to take for you to answer? How, how long before you, you step in and you do something for me? Long before we ever get to where David is in this psalm, that's what's on our mind. We are impatient and we want to know how long is it going to be before God responds. To be honest, I've felt this way the last few weeks since we've been trying to uh, help host our um, partnering pastors from the Philippines. Uh, on several occasions, we thought we had a ride worked out and, and something happened. Uh, one time, the, the car just broke. That was nobody's fault. But two other times, people that had offered the unlimited use of the vehicle then suddenly pulled back that offer. And of course, we've been praying that they would have this unlimited use of a vehicle so that they could go wherever they want. And there's other churches that have, that have uh, invited them to come and speak and hear about their ministry, but many others are silent. It's like crickets chirping. And I want to say, how long, O oh Lord? How long before you provide transportation, before some of your people sacrifice the generosity, invite them to come and to fellowship with them and see ways they could partner and expand not just their little church, but the kingdom of God throughout the nations? And I am tempted towards impatience. In fact, God has used one of our brothers to remind me several occasions when he can see the ears turning red, the nose snorting, get 
getting impatient, like, why is this happening? It's okay, brother, he says. It's okay. That's why he'll be closer to the throne of Christ on the final day than I will. But here's what we must remember. God always wants what's best for his people. Not what we think we need, not what we ask for. Not in the timing for which we ask it. But God always knows what's best. So maybe what's best for me right now, maybe what's best for this body who partners with them, maybe what's best is not for them to have all of their needs immediately met so that we don't have to worry about it. Maybe God, what God wants to do is to stretch us, to stretch me, to have an ever-deepening humility and dependence upon God in my prayer life. And so he gives just enough, just enough, just enough, so that rather than just say, okay, they're taken care of, I'm on my face constantly before God saying, God, come and help. God, provide from the abundance of your resources. God, move in the hearts of your people across the state. I think about the anguish that David is crying out from. I think about his experience of feeling disciplined by the Lord, of feeling unable to go on, of asking how long is this going to continue. And I cannot help but also think of Christ who experienced anguish in his own soul. Anguish not because of anything he had done, but because of what he would do for us. I think of him and what we saw several months ago wrestling in Gethsemane because he knew he would in fact bear the fullness of God's wrath. David says, I don't want the fullness of God's wrath. But Jesus knows that's the plan of God for his life. And so while David is anguished in agony to escape that wrath, Jesus is in agony and in anguish because he knows he's about to take up that wrath. He would be treated as the rebel so that we, his people, might be treated as sons. David has been asking for help, and now he makes the case for why God should help him. And so here we see his arguments of prayer, the arguments of prayer in verses 4 through 7. Now, when I say arguments of prayer, I don't mean that, that he's arguing with God. I don't mean, as you sometimes see, TV preachers fancying themselves, knowing more than God, saying that they argue back with him in prayer. That's debating him. That's not what I'm talking about. What I mean is presenting your arguments, making your case for why God should listen to you, why he should act. Now, even talking that way, it may, that may make you uncomfortable. You may think, well, sh shouldn't God just listen to me? Well, why would he? Why would God just immediately accept you into the, his presence and listen to everything that you would babble on about before him in prayer? If I spend the next 30 minutes talking about why I deserve a Escalade, do you think he would be happy with that? Probably not. In fact, what you see biblically is God's people making the case before God at why they should listen and why they should respond to their prayers. And so I think that we need to follow their example. We see it here in Psalm 6. We see it throughout the Bible. We see Jesus himself. Read John 17. He doesn't just ask things for his people. He explains why God should give them. Perhaps that the first and most classic example is the intercession that we see 
Abraham making to God on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah. God, if there were just 50 righteous people in all the city, would you spare it? Throughout the Bible, this is how biblical people pray. They make arguments before God. As Spurgeon says, the Bible's prayers were like those who knew they were going to make an appeal before a great king. They weren't just going to make off-the-cuff remarks, but come prepared to make their case. That's why we should learn how to make an argument in prayer. But secondly, we should employ arguments or reasoning in prayer because it shows how seriously we're taking our pleas before God. Prayer shouldn't be our last resort, but our first priority. Therefore, there are those times, of course, in immediate crisis where there's little more than we can do but yell, help, before God. But that should not be the regular steady state life of prayer that we have. It should be thoughtful, even as we saw from Psalm 5 last week. Finally, we should make an argument before God in prayer because it will shape and change our own hearts. If we just throw up any and every thought that we have without consideration, it's not going to do anything but affirm what we already think we want and need. But if we stop, we may discover that our thinking is muddled, that our desires are wrong, that we're not asking for the kind of things that God wants us to ask for. If we stop and think and form an argument in our minds, it will force us to consider our needs, the needs of others, and the motivation we have for asking. It will force us to slow down and evaluate the entirety of our prayer life, challenging our assumptions and hopefully changing our requests so that we come seeking the Father's kingdom, before our luxury and comfort. Now much more can be said there maybe this week on the website. Some resources about that will be put up. But let's see the kind of arguments that David makes in prayer. I I want to convince you this was good, so that way you're going to learn now from David and how he prays before God. Notice, first of all, he tells God to remember his promise. He says, remember your promise. That's his first argument in prayer, verse 4. David's asked for help. He does so in verse 4. He says, turn, O Lord, deliver my life. But why should God answer him? Why should God give him what he asked for? David prays, save me for for the sake of your steadfast love. As we've already seen many times in the Psalms, the steadfast love of the Lord is his covenant faithfulness to his people. It is the grace and the mercy, the care, the provision, the love that he has only displayed in saving them, but now through his covenant promises has pledged to display to them. He will not turn away from them and reject them. He will be their God and do them good. And David knows this doubly so because he's not just a son of the covenant. He's not just a son born into Israel. He has received a covenant of his own between him and David. That's it. Can you imagine the God of the universe making a promise to you and no one else? And so David says, you have pledged your steadfast love. Don't forget that, God. Come to me. Turn, deliver me, save me, because you have promised good to your people. Many of you are probably familiar with a former president named Theodore Roosevelt, but I'm guessing not many of you are familiar with his son, Theodore Roosevelt Jr. He was actually the third, but he was known as Jr. because his father was so famous. In some ways, he was every bit as interesting and remarkable as his father, in part because his father's legacy helped shape his own character. Roosevelt Jr. was one of the few people that actually fought in World War I and World War II. 
And by the time World War II came, he had achieved the rank of general. But he was not one who simply stayed at a forward command post directing troops. He was what is known as a fighting general. He was on the front lines with his men engaging the enemy. Having served distinctly in North Africa and Italy, when he learned of the planned D-Day invasion of Normandy, he demanded to General Eisenhower that he be allowed to be with the first wave of troops that landed on Utah Beach. You have to bear in mind, this time Roosevelt was 56 years old and used a cane to walk. He was not in great health. Both wars had taken their toll on him physically. And so Major General Barton was given the task of denying Roosevelt's request. But Roosevelt did not give up and repeatedly demanded that he be allowed to see forward action and be there to lead those troops on the evasion of Utah Beach. Why, they said. Why do you feel so strongly about this? Why do you feel this compulsion to be there? His argument was this. My men expected of me. I'm the son of Theodore Roosevelt. He might easily have said, it's who I am. It's in my nature. It's part of my character. And that's what David is arguing here. It is not in the character of God to go back on his promise. It is not in the character of God to be wishy-washy towards his people. You have committed. You've promised your steadfast love. Now God, show it to me in my life. Pour out your steadfast love as you have promised to do. Be the God that we know that you are. His second argument is this. Don't just remember your promise, remember my purpose. Remember my purpose. Here's the second reason why the Lord should deliver his life. He says in verse 5, For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? Now Sheol is a word that is sometimes translated hell, but that's a little unfortunate because when we think of hell, we think of flames and condemnation for sinners. But Sheol is not the word for those that die and are condemned to everlasting torment. It is simply the realm of the dead. In the Hebrew mind, when you die, you go to Sheol. Everybody. doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, whether or not you're an Israelite, Sheol is the grave. And here... Here, David is making an argument based upon the purpose of his life. He says, I cannot fulfill that purpose in the grave. What is that purpose? Well, I think uh, many thousands of years later, Westminster Assembly got it right when they said the chief purpose of all humanity, every person who's ever lived, is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And David says essentially the same thing. I live to give you praise. This morning, you exist for God's glory. Do, do you know that? Your purpose in breathing, your purpose in living and walking on this earth, your purpose in speaking every word that comes out of your mouth, in thinking every thought, in working your job from nine to five, in serving in ministry, in loving family and sinners, in parenting and relaxing and witnessing and laughing and everything else you will possibly do this day is for one overriding purpose, to give God glory, to give Him praise with your life, to live in such a way that He is honored. Do you live that way? Do you even think that way? David did, and it shaped his prayers. Oh Lord, deliver my life. In death there's no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? Now, this does not mean that David had no expect, expectation of the afterlife. 
We, can, we, we will see later another prayer where he loses an infant son to death and he says, I will see you one day because I am coming to you into death even though you will never return to me in this life. David expected an afterlife. But here his argument comes down to this. God, if, if I die, if the king dies... How am I going to lead your people in praise? How will I fulfill the purpose for which you have made me to glorify you, to honor you, to magnify your greatness in this life? If I die, there's one less person doing that in the world. Don't let me die, God. Let me live that I might glorify your name. Is that an interesting contrast to how we would pray? Let me live so I can spend more time with my family. Let me live so I can make more money for their, their needs in retirement. I'm just not ready yet, God. I'm fearful of what is to come. We think of all these, all these ways that we might pray for longer life. And that's not how David prayed. It was, let me continue to glorify you with my days. Finally, in verses 6 through 7, David has this argument in prayer. He asks God to remember his pain. Remember my pain, he says. I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. Such is the misery of his experience that David is crying out and weeping till his throat is hoarse and his upholstery is soaked. Like an old man whose eyesight is failing and weak, such is the misery of David's heart that his eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all his foes. In the end, in the language of today, we might say, David's done. Physically, emotionally, he's shot. He's got nothing left. There are no resources in himself that will motivate him, that will encourage him and strengthen him to go on. And he's holding all this up before God saying, can you, can you see what I'm going through? Do you see the pain that I'm enduring? Let me wait. wonder, David, later you're going to say, where can I go to flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I go down to hell, you're there and everywhere in between. Don't you know that he sees? Don't you know that he understands? Yes, of course. But David is bringing that pain back before God's eyes and says, look, look what I'm going through. Why? Because he knows that God will be moved with compassion and will act at the tears and the cries and the pain and the suffering of his people. Isn't that how Israel was formed in the first place? The the covenant sons of Abraham had grown into this massive nation but were in bondage and slavery in Egypt. They didn't even know who God was. They're calling out to all kinds of Egyptian gods, save us, help us, free us. But Moses tells us that the Lord heard the cries of his people and was moved to compassion. David says the same thing. Hear and understand, O God, See the pain. See what I'm going through and act. Come to my aid and my salvation. Just like any father worth his salt, when God sees and hears about the pain of his son, he will act. So the Lord will be moved to compassion and mercy. He will act to relieve that pain. That was what David believed and therefore he had an assurance of faith. This is the third thing that we see in the Psalm, verses 8 through 10, the assurance of faith. If we've been tracking along, verses 8 through 10 almost looks like a different man emerges from the Psalm. It's not as if David is done speaking. He just has a different sense of confidence about him. He has called out to the Lord in prayer and he's been changed. He, 
His trust, his faith in the Lord has been strengthened and deepened because, first of all, he knows that the Lord's people will be heard. The Lord's people will be heard. This is what changes David. He knows afresh that God has heard his prayers. He says, depart from me, all you workers of evil. Why? For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. And again in verse 9, verse nine the Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. What plea, what prayer? What we've seen in the first seven verses. Now, as we work through these psalms, you will see this is a common occurrence. You see people that just have hit the wall. They're done. They don't know what's going to happen. They don't know how they're going to go on. They're in pain. They're suffering. Their enemies are at their throats. And then suddenly, after calling out to God, they come to the end and said, but my hope is in you. Why? What is the change? In part, it's simply because they prayed. And it's the way that they prayed. Yes, they dealt honestly about how they were feeling and what was going on, but then they considered who God is. They considered who God has not only promised to be, but what He's revealed Himself to be, and there they take heart. There they receive boldness of faith. They're able to look up and see again the Lord of glory who has called them His own. And so different for us today in the new covenant of Christ. He has all the more given us his own spirit that not only unites us to Christ and therefore brings us into fellowship with God, but we're told that the spirit of God is the spirit of adoption. It allows us, it motivates us, it encourages us by faith to cry out to God, Abba, Father. He's not just God. He's not just King. He's not just Lord. He is our Father. And the Spirit gives us that assurance that when We call out. He will hear because He loves us. He has adopted us and called us His own. Therefore, He will not turn away. He will hear the prayers of His people. But secondly, David knows that the Lord's name will be honored. The Lord's name will be honored. Because of his encounter with God, David is assured of his calling. Turning towards his enemies, he rejects any association with evildoers. Depart from me. All you workers of evil, he says. Now remember what we saw in Psalm 2. David is who? The Lord's anointed. So this is not just David the sufferer getting back on those who would threaten him. No, this is David asserting his power, his kingly authority, his right to purge Israel and to banish the wicked from the presence of the Lord. As we saw last week, the evildoer is not one who is simply struggling with sin who's trying to battle temptation, this is the person whose life is marked by unrepentance. They are an open, obvious, unrepentant rebellion against God. But notice the contrast here. Whereas David himself was troubled, now it will be his enemies who experience trouble. Verse 10, All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. What moment is this? The day of judgment. The day of God's return. Well, he will put every wrong right and bring righteousness to his people. Now understand, David's assurance is not contingent on the present. He's not looking at his circumstances now and saying, oh, everything's all better. It's okay now. The pain's gone. The suffering's gone. Nothing has changed. I mean, we went from one verse to the next. Nothing's different. But what is he doing? He's looking to the future promise. He's looking to what God has said he will do, and he takes faith and courage and confidence in the present. 
He is able with the eyes of faith to look past his trouble and see the day of the Lord that has been promised, a day when he will judge the world. And just as evildoers will be put to shame, those who bear God's name will be vindicated, thus honoring the Lord himself. Or as Paul says in Romans 3, on that day, God will be shown to be both just, he doesn't wink at sin, he doesn't ignore it, he doesn't say, I don't worry about it, and he will also be the justifier of his people, the one who declares them righteous before him and allows them to live forever in his presence. And Paul says that's only possible. David can only pray and have the hope that he does because eventually God sent his son Christ. And he is the one who bore the righteous and just wrath of the Father that his people might be justified. So even more so now, our faith can be encouraged. We can have assurance and know that God is not slow concerning his promises. One day he will return and judge the living and the dead, destroying sin forever and forever justifying his people to the glory of his name. The anguish that Jesus experienced in the garden looking forward to the cross, bearing the wrath of God was not the end of his story. God heard his prayer. And he vindicated Christ. He raised him up just as he will us one day. The risen Christ on that day will judge the world and purge everyone who practices sin from his kingdom. David here and his desire to banish wicked doers from his presence is pointing forward to the work of his greater son, King Jesus, who will perfectly and finally do that very thing. James Johnson tells the story of a young woman who went to her mother and told her about how hard things were for her. Her life was difficult and she wanted to give up. She was tired and she was struggling and it seemed like God had just forgotten about her. And the mother said, let's go to the kitchen and, and sit down. And she didn't know what was going to happen in that kitchen, but her mom got out three pots and began boiling water on the stove. And as the water began to boil, she put carrots in the first pot and she put eggs in the second pot and she put a pot of coffee in the third pot and she let them simmer continue boiling for 20 30 minutes whatever it was and then brought them off the burner the daughter's wondering what in the world is going on what is she doing and this mom scooped out the carrots and put them in a bowl and she scooped out the eggs and put them in a bowl and she took the pot of coffee and poured it in two cups and brought it all to the table and says tell me what you see here sweetie says i see carrots eggs and coffee I don't want this for breakfast. She said, no, 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 no. Yeah, just, what do you, pick up the carrot. Tell me what you see. Limp, soggy. Used to be strong. Used to be able to crack it with a snap. Just limp now. So what about the eggs? Well, crack it open. What do you got? Hard boiled egg. She says, now pick up that cup of coffee and tell me what you smell. And she said, sweet aroma of one of God's greatest gifts. And the girl said, but I still don't get it. What does it mean, mom? The carrots, the eggs, the coffee, I don't get it. She says, listen, here's what you need to understand. Each of these things face the same thing, boiling water. And each of them came out different. The carrot that was once strong and hard became limp and soft. The egg that had been fragile and delicate now is hard. But the coffee, the coffee, when it was boiled, when it underwent adversity, it flourished and allowed its fragrance to 
bloom out into the entirety of the room. And she looked at her daughter and said, now you've got to decide, what are you going to be? How are you going to respond? When God turns up the heat of life, when he allows adversity to come in, are you simply going to go limp and lifeless like that carrot? Are you going to become hardened and bitter like that egg? Or is the fragrance of faith going to fill the room so that everyone around you sees and honors your God? And the question is the same for us today. David did not have an easy life. Some of you have struggled far more than I ever will at this point in your life. And who knows what the future holds for any of us. But go back and read 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings. I doubt any of our suffering compares to David's. He knows pain and suffering. And how does he come out but the fragrance of faith? Even more than David. Think about Christ, who endured every temptation, every temptation to such a degree that none of us will ever be able to endure that. The temptation to turn away, to not go to the cross, to somehow be a savior without suffering and death. And instead, he trusts his heavenly father. He trusts that after making atonement for sin, he will not be left in the grave, he will not be abandoned, but he will be brought back to life. And God did it. He kept the promise. And so Christ is the one that we look to now. And realize now that our life is hidden in him, therefore God will not forsake us. And so when the crucible comes, let us not just give up, just throw in the towel and say, I can't deal with it anymore and flee. Let us not become hardened and bitter, angry at God. No, let it produce within us the fragrance of faith. Let it produce within us the flowering that God desires to bring out because of those difficult circumstances. Yes, cry out to God in prayer. Yes, express your agony. Yes, make your arguments before God. But be assured because of the confidence we have of faith in Christ. Father, we're so thankful for your word, which is so clear and honest about how we live our life. Father, we're thankful about your word which teaches us about your son, Jesus Christ, and the confidence and the faith that we have in him in all things. We pray, Father, that as we leave Psalm 6, we will remember the value that it had for your own son and his life and ministry on this planet. And Father, it will become precious to us as well. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.